Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hey, what is going on, everybody? And welcome back to the College Info Geek podcast, the internet's best resource for getting ahead as a student, becoming more productive, but a terrible resource for learning how to ingest a normal, responsible amount of coffee every single day. Yeah. That actually may be an inaccurate statement because I imagine you don't ingest a copious amount of coffee. Um... I drink more coffee than I did a year ago, mostly to deal with my poor sleeping habits that I'm in the process of fixing. But when I do drink coffee, it's like one a day, one coffee a day. Fix your sleeping habits, dude. Oh, I mean, I woke up early this morning. I'm working on it. It just takes some time. And then like the problem is that being stuck inside all the time basically means all time is the same. So I don't really notice when it's 2 a.m. because it's no different to me than like 6 p.m. Yeah, well, I got well, up a call with is. um with my one of my one of my friends in Spain, and I feel so bad for him over there because their their order is uh he he cannot leave his apartment. I think he can leave for an hour a day, only to go to the grocery store, and only within like a kilometer radius. Yeah, they, of where they he lives. Uh, it's had very to get, strict. Had to get very strict over there. Mm-hmm. And over here, I mean, our our order is still in effect as of this recording. And I think this is going live while it's still going to be in effect, at least yeah, in Denver. Yeah. Um, but we can at least go outside to exercise, which is a blessing for sure. Um, anyway, today we're going to do a little bit of an experimental episode. So um, for those of you who haven't tuned into the podcast in a while, uh, one thing that we are going to be doing very soon is retiring the College Info Geek podcast name and changing over to a new name. Uh, I think that's a better way of describing it than simply saying we're ending the podcast because in effect, we're not ending the podcast. We are just moving over to a new name and changing to episode number one. I get, yeah, we will be changing to episode number one, but we're staying on the same feed. You don't have to subscribe to a new podcast. You don't have to subscribe to a new YouTube channel. We're simply changing the branding because, uh, you know, we're both, uh, well, you're, you are 29. I'm nearly 29. Um, um, I haven't been in college for a while and you know, we don't talk about college stuff in this podcast. I don't want to anymore. So uh, I miss college. It was cool. That's, I that's do what I have miss to say it. today about college. I ha- yeah. I have a lot of, um, nostalgia for college, but there's just not a huge amount of uh, incentive for me to talk about like test scores anymore because, well, I guess I do have to take my drone exam at some point soon here. That's fair. So maybe there will be like one episode and it's like, hey, I'm reviewing my ability to study for this. But, you know, not every episode is going to be about that. So this is a bit of an experimental episode. We've noticed that we get a lot of questions about uh, some of the specific hobbies and skills that we have. Um, So today we are going to go through five of our... I want to say collective hobbies, but there's one hobby on here that only you have, but we still get questions about all of them. We're just going to kind of riff on how to get into each of them. 
um, talk about some tips that have allowed us to maybe accelerate our learning or practice and just going to have kind of a fun episode. And, uh, you know, I say it's kind of an experiment because with our new podcast uh, branding that we're going to come out with, it's going to give us the ability to sort of branch out a little bit and not always talk about productivity or self-development. I want to have the ability to talk about, you know, maybe talk about business sometimes, maybe talk about a hobby sometimes. Um, it's going to be kind of just like a two, two dudes talking podcast, you know, I do talk, hang out. We're like Shaggy and Scooby. I don't know why that's the duo that I came up with, but I get to be Scooby. That, well, I fast. mean, that's probably fair. I've been called Shaggy before back in the day with different fashion sense and hairstyle. So, that it, Well, the way, the way your facial hair comes in, it doesn't come in super thick on the sides, so it is a little more Shaggy style. I could, and I could pull it off. I probably have the right clothes upstairs if I just look. You probably do. I know you own a green shirt, like a plain green yeah. t-shirt. I don't know if you own like regular old khaki pants. But we could probably find some. Hey, that'd be a good Halloween costume. I don't know if I'm gonna do. I don't know if I'm gonna do Scooby. I think I'd be a better Velma. Yeah, (laughs) that's fair. Velma's pretty cool. (laughs) I hope Anna gets to edit this episode. I don't know if she's going to edit this one, but anyway. uh, So yeah, let's let's get into it. Um, The first skill that we get questions about is inline skating. I keep trying to say inline skating. That is the that is the proper term. Rollerblades are a brand. That is a brand. Yeah, I don't use Kleenexes. I use tissues. Yeah. Right. But yeah, inline <laughs> skating is pretty cool. You posted uh, the thing on Instagram not too long ago. Yeah. And I saw some people Ooh. in there like, "How are you doing this? How does that even? What is that?" And then I'm I'm really excited. Apparently, it's a thing. Uh, actually, I can I can probably scooch over and grab it. So people suggested that I get a 360 camera. So I did. I got the 360 or the Insta 360 1R. I'm going to try doing some like action cam stuff with the with the skates using that later today, actually. It'll be broken uh, tomorrow. <laughs> well, it's an action cam, so it is literally built Ooh, that for makes action things. Cool. Whereas the way I took my original skating video was I, I have like a phone mount. And it is a good phone mount, like it clamps down pretty hard, but I was just using my iPhone without a case, clamped that on a selfie stick. And uh, it worked pretty well. Yeah. I mean, I got to say, I am I am very impressed with the iPhone's ability to stabilize footage, especially with that wide angle lens. It's pretty incredible. I mean, it, it looks like it's on a gimbal. So, but, but a 360 camera is even better because it is capturing the entire field of view, which means you can get essentially perfect stabilization and they have some pretty great stabilization algorithms uh but i want to talk about this skill number one we've gotten questions about it but number two i have a declaration to make skating is better than running for getting cardio oh easy easy way more fun so much more fun so like in the past right and i've been i've been skating since i was a kid i remember getting my first pair of uh skates like roller skates with the quad wheels oh, yeah. uh, when I was probably four years old. It's actually probably one of my earliest memories is my parents trying to teach me how to stand up on these things. And I think they have a video of me just flopping around like a fish. Um, but I've been skating since then. Lots of skin knees growing up. And then I kind of forgot about it when I moved to Denver. 
And it was always just like, all right, well, my options for getting cardio outside are either to go for a run, which I kind of hate, or to go for a bike ride. And um, this whole quarantine thing has me just desperately looking for ways to entertain myself in ways that I can. And I was like, wait a minute, I, I forgot I own skates. We used to skate all the time in college. And it is just the perfect in-between. Yeah, I, I, would I feel say like it's generally my favorite if I... I mean, obviously, if I don't need to go somewhere and stop where then it becomes obnoxious, but mm-hmm. like going to a store, but rollerblades are the best. Yeah. Yeah. They are absolutely the best. They let you see a lot more than you get to see when you're running because, you know, I can go put in eight miles on the skates in, uh, I think about 40 minutes of skating. Yeah. I did about an eight mile session, about 40 minutes the other day. Uh, you see a lot more that way than uh than you do when you're running but with biking i like biking but skating is just so much more dynamic to me um unless you know unless i'm mountain biking but i don't have like easy access to the mountains especially right now it's not recommended or possibly not even legal that i go into the mountains so my only area that i can go to for exercises within the city and there's just not a whole lot of like really fun biking area so i can just you know go put in 20 miles on the bike when i'm skating like a curb is now a fun thing yeah to jump up or jump down all that kind of stuff uh so my my first tip i guess for skating is you gotta learn how to stop that's pretty important (laughs) and um most skates come with like the brake on the back yeah, Which I don't like using. I that. think yours may have it still, but you don't. Even I never use took it, do it off. I don't. I feel like if I used it, I would honestly just confuse myself. I might fall if I try to use that brake. It's yeah. It's like it'll throw me off balance. The momentum would be kind of curved a little bit if I stop one foot like that and then have the other. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't. Yeah. Don't like it. it. Doesn't feel natural. I used to use it. It. I mean, it's a very much valid way of stopping. Um, but if you ask anybody who's like into inline skating, it's not something that they're going to rely on. And there are other techniques that you'd want to learn, especially since you will wear that break away over time. I mean, I guess like most stopping methods are going to wear your wheels away too, but yeah, but you're already going to have to replace your wheels every once in a while and rotate them. That's just unavoidable. Also, I don't think that heel break is a, an effective method of stopping quickly if you're going fast. Cause there's just not a lot of material. And if you're, if you're doing like a drag stop with your wheels, you are putting the blade kind of perpendicular to your skating foot. And all four of the wheels are dragging along the ground and you have a lot more control and there's a lot more ability to stop quickly. Yeah. So I guess that wouldn't be the first thing you do. Cause the first thing you need to do is learn how to skate. And I've had friends who have, Uh, tried to go skating with and they find it hard to just stay balanced i guess the biggest thing there is uh, i find it easiest to stay balanced if you're a little bit lower to the ground at first so you can kind of get like a little bit of a bent knee position and you get a lower center of gravity and you feel a little bit more stable but then yeah like once you get going the the first thing you need to learn to do is stop and uh the, the main thing is a drag stop where you just kind of put your your foot behind you you're not putting weight on it but you're putting it perpendicular to the skating foot that you do have your weight on and then you can kind of vary the pressure yeah it's like all all diagonal on the sidewalk dragon you can 
you can control it. Sometimes I actually will uh, lessen the effect even more by dragging with just the front wheel. Oh, yeah. It's just like a super casual way to be slowing down over a long distance. It, I know I'll wear the wheel down unevenly, but I, I, I'll rotate them. Um, yeah, you just rotate your wheels. Also, when and I do it with one wheel, it feels cool. It does feel cool. That's true. It's just like a, it's the light brake. One thing I've been trying to get in the habit of doing is when I'm doing a drag stop, I'll drag a little bit with the right foot and then I'll switch to the left foot and I'll kind of switch between them. So that way I'm ideally putting even wear on all the wheels. Mm. And all I would need to do is say I'm running like a four wheel setup per skate. I would just need to switch the front and back on one to the middle of the other and vice versa. And if you're doing drag stops with both feet, you should have even wear. So then when you switch and you don't switch them, you don't flip them around, uh, you then start wearing back to a neutral wheel shape. Yeah. Because you get to the point where eventually if, if you don't rotate them around, the inside of the wheel is very sharp in its angle and the outside is not. And it just sort of buckles your knees inward, which sucks. Yeah, it can become dangerous if you don't. If you let it get way too far, it's just... You're not going to be able to hold oh. your balance or stop correctly, or you might have a sharp edge hit a crack in a way that the round wheel wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've noticed in doing crossovers now with my um, my older set of plates, because I just got new skates yesterday, they're so worn because I haven't rotated them that doing a crossover at enough of an angle will cause the skate to just slip out yeah. and fly out to the yeah, side. Well, of you, yeah, you got to maintain them. Mm -hmm. It's not like you have to do uh, it like every day or anything, but... You mentioned you mentioned a crack. Uh, this is something that I think a lot of people don't think about, but that can kind of burn them. Something for cycling too. If there are cracks in the sidewalk, don't skate completely parallel to them because it's very easy for your wheels to get caught in the crack. Oh yeah, like you're on a and that will just track. That was, yeah, that'll just send you flying. I hate that I do that with bikes. So you always too. want to be kind of crossing over the cracks at an angle or or totally perpendicularly. And yeah, if you have a bike with thin tires, that can happen as well. I mean, I've been on a bike before where um, there's enough of a gap between the sidewalk and the dirt yeah. that my bike tire has gone into it and just, you know, I'll fall off. So anytime I'm like, I got to go into the grass or something, I'm always making sure to go at a pretty good angle instead of just, you know, lazily drifting over. Yeah. Because that's when you fall into the groove and it's not fun. I'm pretty stoked. I got tri skates, which have three wheels. And I opted for uh, bigger wheels that are 110 millimeter. And I think the ones oh, yeah. that you and I typically used were like 84s or 80s. That sounds about right. So uh, they're very different. I took them out yesterday and they felt very weird. So I'm going to get used to them. But I'm interested to see how they fare over time versus the uh, 84s. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never done that. Because the wheels are bigger, they should ideally go faster. But then there will be less maneuverability. So it's a bit of a trade-off. You do like going fast. I do like to go fast. So one thing that I thought wasn't possible, um, being a figure skater as well, you know how like figure skaters and hockey skaters on ice will do the hockey stop where they literally yeah. put the blades to the side that out in front of them and just sort of like snow plow to stop. I thought that wasn't possible on skates with wheels, but it is. Uh, there's a guy on YouTube named Bill Stoppard and he has a whole bunch of tutorials about this. He literally, he'll, he'll kind of shed some speed with drag stops, but then he will do like this power hockey stop to actually stop quickly. And it's something that I now really want to learn. It's terrifying to do though. 
Yeah. Like, yeah. I imagine that would be different, especially like we're adults now. So it feels like I'm, I want to be more careful when learning something new as a kid. I probably would have just tried it over and over and broken my face a few times and learned it. But yeah. now it's a big deal to learn something like that to me. Well, now, you know, the bigger you are, the harder you fall. You got your face falls further. Yeah. So it's going to get That's more true. broken. Yeah, I'm trying to find a good place to practice it. I feel like the best place would be some kind of smooth concrete rink or basketball court or something. Yeah, that's probably most of the pavement around us is not that smooth, or if it is, it is in the middle of the street. So I don't know if I want to practice it there, but I will, I will find something. Uh, oh, one other good stopping technique is to do like a slalom with both wheels. And if you get good enough at making the the changes in direction extreme enough, you'll just shed speed that way versus just going totally straight. I mean, if you think about a skier, that's how they uh, control their speed going down the mountain is they kind of go side to side instead of just straight line bombing down the hill. So if you're skating and you're like, all right, I see a stop light up there. I want to shed some speed. Um, first thing I typically do if I have enough width on the path, the path that I'm skating is I'll do that slalom stop or to shed speed, then I'll drag stop. And then I can't power stop yet, but what I can do is the thing you taught me, where you just sort of spin in a circle with your legs flared out wide, oh, yeah. which transfers all your forward momentum into a circle. Yeah, as, um, as long as you're not going too fast, you can do that. And then... Yeah, if you're going too fast, it, it has to that, be a power stop, or it will turn into a power stop, or you'll fly forward. Yeah, you don't want to do that. Which is, yeah, not the best idea. Uh how should people buy their skates? Is there any sort of like special skate you got to get? Yeah, I don't even, I don't even know. I mean, I just go to the, I'd go to like the sport sporting goods store and I just get the ones with the color I like that are, uh, <laughs> uh I think I got K2s, pretty, mm-hmm. pretty decent rollerblades, um, or whatever brand they are. You know, they actually have, I have K2s, K2s as well. Brand, I'm pretty sure. But yeah, they're, they're pretty good. Other than that, I mean, I don't think too hard about it because I want to skate casually. I can't, yeah. I can skate fast. I can do things like that. But for the most part, I like to skate just like, I'm just like going for a stroll in, mm-hmm. in which I roll. It's super smooth and I just kind of, kind of watch stuff and enjoy. And if you're doing that and you're not trying to go super fast, probably won't even be a big deal. Your most important trick is going to be learning balance. And, um, that's yeah. it. Yeah, getting the balance is definitely the the first part and probably the hardest part. And then learning how to stop properly is the next thing. There are a couple of things I'll say about buying skates. I guess the main distinction is in wheel hardness and size. So aggressive skates that are meant for park skating are typically going to have very small wheels that are very hard, which are meant to take the impacts of jumping down stairs and stuff. But uh you know, somebody brought this up in my Instagram comments when I posted my video. They were like, the pavement here is too rough. Uh, skating on it sucks and I can't get any speed. Well, the problem mm. there is if your wheels are too hard, then rough pavement is going to, um, one, major, make your ride really, really bumpy and rattly, but two, slow you down. And um, if your wheels are small, well, if you think about like Mario Kart, right? The carts with the tiny wheels, they accelerate really quickly because there's barely any energy needed to get them rolling, but then they're so small that there's sort of like an upper limit for how fast they can get going or how much distance they can cover. So the bigger your wheels, the higher your top speed. So with uh, with skates and with 
um, skateboards as well. If you want to be able to cruise at a decent clip and deal with rough pavement, you'd want softer, bigger wheels. And I think, you know, ones we've always used, I think they're 84 millimeters are totally fine for most pavement. Just don't go yeah. out and like buy 60 millimeter, you know, aggressive inline skate wheels with hard boot skates if you just want to cruise around for fun. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, and I think a lot of people might end up just wanting, wanting the bigger, softer skate wheels anyway, just because mm -hmm. that's how more people are going to skate is kind of casually. And then if you get super good and you want to do the crazy stuff, you'll know, and then you'll just get different wheels. Yeah, then you'll know. Um, I also wouldn't pro I wouldn't start with like hundred millimeter or more. No, wheels. that seems that seems extreme to me. Like you were just saying, it mm -hmm. feels weird for you, and I know you've skated a lot too. So, yep. Um, yeah, and I'll, I know I'll get used to it, but one hundred and ten is like you're up a lot higher, so there's just naturally less stability. Yeah, and you're gonna you want to start out um, also going much more slowly and being much more chill because you're gonna want to mm -hmm. make sure that you are loose. Your, your muscles are loosened up. Um, I was yeah. trying to teach a friend to skate back in college and they were so scared of falling that they were like stiff. They were like a mannequin in, in skates, but then you can't react smoothly to alter your balance. You can't like shift yourself ever so slightly to stay on balance. Yeah. And then n not only do you want loose muscles so you can react more quickly and smoothly, but if you do fall, loose muscles will prevent you or they'll help prevent you from breaking things as often. If your muscles are super mm. stiff and you fall, you're more likely to break your bones. So that's true. That's I've, not I've awesome. often heard that, uh, weirdly enough, and I don't know how true this is, but uh, I think my mom always told me this is like, ironically, the, the drunk driver in a drunk driving accident gets hurt less because their impairment causes their muscles to be more relaxed. Yeah, because your stiff muscles literally like crush the bone more. They they work as a cushion if they're loose, though. And yeah. uh, but you you do not want to be skating around like a mannequin or or you know a T pose uh, <laughs> figure because you don't you don't just skate around T poses. I mean, you that's an expert move. You need to earn <laughs> that. And then the next move is T pose on one foot. Yeah, just but rolling like, down. I call that the flamingo. You want to start out slow just so you can get used to it and then you'll be able to do that stuff mm -hmm. and it'll be cool but otherwise that same friend i was trying to teach because of how stiff they were when they tried to turn their their arms and legs and everything couldn't adjust to the circular motion motion so then they yeah fell right out like their skates went right out from under them they fell flat on their back like Oof. like basically like when you belly flop on the water, but it was on their back and on concrete. So it, it they didn't like skates very much that day. And they were really <laughs> mad at me, even though it wasn't my fault. They were just like so mad at what just happened. They were just like, why did you make me try to do this? Uh, you don't, you don't want to be doing that stuff with your muscles so stiff that you can't react when you start turning. Yeah. I mean, on that note, uh, I would recommend wearing a helmet. Yeah, that that would be probably a good idea. always, but at least until you get very comfortable going, stopping, turning all the basics. Because yeah, I mean it. It, it is a, a fact that you could have both skates just fly out in front of you if your balance is incorrect and you you know fall backwards. Yeah, uh, and then you could hit your head. I do so. not imagine it felt good. 
I'm reminded of that. There's a video clip where this dude is just bombing a hill in his longboard and he tries to slide out to do a power stop and just, um, uh, yeah. I don't know what happens, but he flips over and falls backwards, but down the hill. And then when he hits the ground, his head just slams into the pavement, but he's wearing a helmet and he just gets up and he's like, I love helmets. I love helmets. Yeah. So. Um, Dying like isn't that guy, as fun at as least rolling. In, in the helmet wearing, maybe not the bombing hills on your, on your longboard. Yeah, too spooky for me. All right, uh, let's move on to the next skill. So you know, hopefully, hopefully, we've gotten some people interested in skating because plodding along, just running all day, it's not that fun. Also, I have uh, I realized that um, skating is probably better for your knees long term than constant running. Oh, interesting. It's just such lower impact. I mean, if you're yeah. jumping off curbs and stairs and stuff, it's not low impact. But if you're just out to skate, like the impact on your joints is very minimal because it's all just smooth lateral motion. Whereas running is just, I can't run for more than six or seven miles without my, uh, my left ankle just getting tremendous pain, which is, I mean, it's possible I could train, but I don't believe that I could physically run a marathon because of that i think i have the cardio to where i could train for a month or two and probably do it but um that issue with my ankle will just keep me from doing it this week's episode of our show is brought to you by our friends over at skillshare which is a great learning platform for boosting your skills in a ton of different areas they have thousands of classes covering graphic design digital illustration video editing marketing business analytics productivity, all kinds of stuff that can help you boost your creativity, but also boost your skills that can help you in your job fields. It's a very affordable platform as well. Plans start at less than 10 bucks a month. And there are actually two courses from myself on the platform that you might want to check out. And I do want to promo my uh, new course this week, which is all about building strong habits. Since we're talking about building skills that take time and take a lot of invested effort to get good at, then if you want to get good at these skills or really any skill that you are pursuing, you need to make a good habit of putting in at least uh, daily or at least weekly practice uh, into that skill. We talked about the 1% rule. I'm not sure if we talked about the 1% rule uh, yet in this podcast, because I don't know where the ad's going to go. We talked about the 1% rule where you want to get yourself on a publishing schedule and you make a habit of putting work out on a frequent basis, a consistent basis, but also, you know, trying to learn something new and push your abilities just a little bit every time you do it. And knowing how to build strong habits is a huge part of that. So in my habits class, we talk about how you can take your goals, which may be to learn a specific skill or maybe just to you know get consistent with things you're already doing and break those goals down into smaller little chunks that are much more actionable and that you can turn into regular habits. And then we go into how you can build external systems that help to augment your self-discipline and keep you on track until the behavior becomes truly habitual, at which point, you know, it doesn't require that much willpower. So I think you're really going to find that to be a useful course and something that's a useful tool in your tool belt for learning these skills and staying consistent with them. Of course, like I said, there are thousands of other classes on the platform. So if you're interested in video editing, if you're interested in uh, learning how to draw on the iPad with Procreate or anything else, there's probably going to be something for you on Skillshare. And the best part is if you go over to Skillshare.com geek and sign up, you're going to get a two month 
free trials. So you can take my class for free. You can take, well, my other class for free because I do have one other <laughs> class on productivity systems or really anything else you want for free for two months. And then of course, after that, uh, again, it's a very affordable platform. So once again, skillshare.com slash geek, sign up and you're going to get a two month free trial and check it out. Big thanks as always to Skillshare for sponsoring this episode of our show and being a big supporter uh, of it in general. And another big thanks goes out to our second sponsor this week, which is Brilliant. If you want to improve your mastery in the areas of computer science, in the areas of math and uh, regular science in general, Brilliant is a platform that you should absolutely check out. It is a great augment to traditional book learning or video courses because Brilliant's courses are incredibly active. They have over 60 in-depth courses going through topics like calculus, number theory, uh, probability, logic. They have science courses like gravitational physics, classical mechanics, and computer science courses going over things like algorithm design, uh, even a new one on neural networks. And all of these courses throw you immediately into challenging bite-sized but challenging problems that really force you to wrangle with the concepts you're learning. So if you're watching a video somewhere, or reading through a textbook, or being taught something by your teacher, that's a good way of kind of passively and taking the information, but then Brilliant gives you a way to apply it instantly. And their courses are laid out in such a way that the progression of problems uh, really kind of speeds you through to true mastery of these subjects. So if you want to get started with Brilliant, if you want to start mastering these topics, and you also want to improve your ability to solve problems in general, which is going to be very, very helpful in whatever job field you go into, head on over to brilliant.org slash collegeinfogeek and sign up. With their free plan, you get access to a feature called Daily Challenges, where every single day you get a new challenge in a different area that can sort of broaden your horizons and help you to make problem solving a daily habit. And then with their premium subscription, you get access to that library of more than 60 in-depth courses, plus the entire archive of Daily Challenges. And if you're one of the first 200 people to go over to brilliant.org slash geek and sign up, you're going to get a 20% discount on that premium subscription. So once again, brilliant.org slash geek, sign up. And as always, big thanks to Brilliant for sponsoring this episode and being a part of this show, which we are now going to get back into. All right. How does one get into playing the guitar? Now you play, you play we've, guitar we've both now. Done. I do play guitar now. You used to play guitar, though. I did used to play guitar quite a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. I only stopped because of nerve damage. Yeah. And I, it's Would possible you... I could start again, but the for the guitar, I'm looking down at the strings and looking down is hard on my neck. So Oh, yeah, that'll do it. So we'll just play in front of a mirror and, and learn to play looking at your mirrored hand. That, that'd be an interesting gimmick. I mean, I might get... I could do some shows like that. Like, I only play surrounded by mirrors and... But they're one-way the mirrors. Has to look at your back. Yeah, or it's a one-way mirror. <laughs> it's gonna. That's my gimmick. But that's a really weird gimmick. You wouldn't even be able to see the audience cheering for you. Maybe that's better if you're really scared. That's just, that's the introvert's way of playing a show. Yeah, they play behind. I started. Mirrors. So I started playing guitar when I was, I think, thirteen. I can't remember exactly, but my dad had this uh, old Fender acoustic guitar from when he was a kid. And, I played that for a little bit and then he bought me uh, a Walmart electric guitar. It was like one of those, you know, Fender uh, yeah. Squires, I think. I had one of those. Yeah. Everyone yeah. starts on the yeah. Fender Squire. You know, it looks, it looks rad. It's a cheap guitar. The construction is not amazing, but hey, it works. And 
that's that's basically what you need. I think you need an instrument that doesn't sound absolutely terrible because if it if it sounds fundamentally terrible, not from what you're doing, but just because it does, then you're not going to be very inspired to keep practicing enough to get good. No, you need the reward of it sounding good. That's yeah. That's your. But dopamine. you don't need to go out and buy like a three hundred dollar guitar immediately. You know, I think the like the one hundred dollar Walmart guitars are fine to learn on. Yeah. Or or find one on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace, just somewhere someone that's selling one that has a, you know, decent price but also decent condition. Uh, boy, there's a lot I can go into with guitar. So. The first thing everyone learns is kind of like the string order and, and your cowboy chords. Um, what really unlocked my playing, though, was something that I, I didn't know it was called this. I didn't even know it was a thing, but there's something called the caged method where I believe it takes the shapes you use when you play your basic chords, which are usually like a E minor, A minor, C, D, and G, and then kind of like builds these um these like fret groupings of notes out of those um and they're based on like the major and minor scale i didn't know that existed when i was when i was a teenager Uh, what i did was just notice that hey i have four fingers i can have one finger on one fret area and it's easier for me to play within those four frets than it is for me to move my hand up and down the fretboard. So over time, I just sort of like puzzled out patterns of notes that sounded good together. So if I'm on like the second string, which is the A string, I'm like, all right, well, if I'm on the seventh fret, and then I go up to ninth fret and then 10th fret, that sounds good. And if I do the exact same thing on the, the next string, which is the D string, hey, that sounds good if I do the exact same thing. And over time, I puzzled out what eventually was just the major scale and the minor scale, depending on where you start. Uh, and playing within those fret groupings helps me to basically get good at improvisational guitar and, and lead guitar without really ever playing any songs of, that were written by other people. So it's kind of an interesting way to learn, but it, it was a good limitation because I didn't feel like I had to go all over the fretboard. It was just like, all right, play within this four, this grouping of four frets. It was almost like playing Guitar Hero. Huh. I guess like it your, is, your hand it is kind of like that if you're if you're limited it like yeah yeah mm-hmm. and then like I think for me it was the fifth under the seventh fret up to the tenth is where I was playing. Interesting. Yeah, I I never learned that method. In fact, I never even really knew the names of almost any chords. Oh yeah. Everything I played was just stuff I kind of made up, uh, and I mostly did finger picking. And like oh, I and yeah. like I hate guitar picks so. So I played through finger picking primarily and more or less repetitive patterns with a little bit of melody thrown in there just because Mm -hmm. to me it was kind of like piano when I did it that way. So that's like my instinct for music is. Did you start with piano? Yeah. Or guitar? Piano first. Piano way before guitar. I started with guitar. So piano was like very foreign to me when I started doing it. When you finger pick, do you do you grow the nails out? No. Or do you just I use pick the, with pads? the pads? Uh, I hate okay. having long fingernails. I also never developed Same. like the calluses they always told me I would get, even when I did play chords for. Well, you never did. I never did. My fingers wanted to be soft. Does that mean that you always 
felt pain when you were playing guitar just always i don't recall i probably just got used to it because if you if you got used to it then you probably grew some amount of callus maybe but my fingers definitely never felt like hard anywhere mine are like thin at least my, my first three on my left hand are like thimbles I mean, I know if I pick up the guitar now, it will be painful. So it's possible yeah. that I just played through pain over and over. And I've realized that uh, the the type of callus you build, or I guess the sense or the uh, lack of sensitivity that you build up to playing, it differs between lead and chord playing. And a lot of people will say like, oh, you know, most people who play lead, they play it on the electric guitar and the strings are thinner there. So you're moving to acoustic. It's, you know, a lot harder to press down. I play almost exclusively acoustic but I'm very lead focused uh, just because I, th I think you could judge from my personality that that's the kind of guitar I would play rather than just rhythm guitar with steady chord progressions. Yeah. You have to um, focus to do, to do that. And then I feel like you, <laughs> you would be bored in like two seconds. I, I mean, yeah, I, actually I think if someone were to try to diagnose me with any kind of some kind of like attention disorder, they would first look to the way I play guitar and they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's an indicator right there he'll play one phrase that is completely made up and then move on to the next thing. Dave, my friend Dave describes my playing as like um, an, an AI that was taught to play guitar, but told <laughs> never to play the same phrase twice. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I noticed that like when I play lead, I'll build up some callus and some tolerance to the pain of the strings there. And then when I practice chords, it's like I'm back at the beginning and it hurts like crap again. But over time, that sensitivity comes back. So I guess like the first thing I would say about guitar is um, playing it is painful. It's not like piano. There's not a whole lot of pain inherent in playing the piano. I mean, you can get, I guess you've experienced nerve pain, but that's, you know, that shouldn't you happen. Could, you could hurt yourself playing too much or using too much force, but. Yeah. 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 But with, with guitar, there is inherent pain. Mm -hmm. Now, did you play... Um, did you ever play other people's songs or did you ever write your own songs as you were, as you were learning or has it always just been kind of lead noodling? Um, I, I, I wouldn't, I would say that I never really wrote songs until um, last year when I did write a song and I'm working on a documentary about that whole process and how I learned to do it. But yeah, for, for most of my life playing guitar, uh, it's been just me making up phrases and I won't say that I always just, you know, noodle and do new things every time because there are definite phrases I've made up and I will kind of bring those into my playing. And I think that's another thing that you kind of learn as you get better at guitar is you're going to you're going to build up patterns of notes that you are good at and uh, they'll just tend to crop up in your playing, especially if you're an improvisational player like I am. Um, so that's just kind of in my entire life is just making up phrases, making up improvisational stuff. I will often put on a song and then I will figure out the key that it's in simply by playing. And, uh, you know, interestingly, like starting with that grouping of four frets that led to me learning one of the cage shapes. And then I eventually learned all five of them. And then I eventually learned how all five of them bleed into each other as you go up and down the fretboard. So I now look at the fretboard and I see exactly the patterns of frets I need to play to be within the major or minor scale. And depending on where I place those patterns, um, will depend, will, will determine the key of the song. Yeah. So it's not even like, Oh, I'm, 
I don't start from, oh, this song is in D minor, therefore I go here. It's backwards. I'm like, oh, this pattern of frets as I play them sounds right with this song. Okay, that's this key. And I don't even know all the keys. Like that's an area where I probably should study more. I know that if I place my, I know if I play a certain pattern where I start on the fifth fret of the A string and then go uh, five, seven, eight, and then five, seven, eight on the next string, like that's D minor, hmm. which a lot of metal songs are in that key, especially if you tune your guitar to drop D. So like, I know that key, but if, you know, it's another one, I'm like, all right, I got to puzzle it out in my head. Often I just don't because I just play. Um, but that is one way in which I like to play is I'll put on a song, I'll figure out what the key is just based on which pattern of frets sounds good with it. And then I'll just improv, like do improvisational stuff over it. And lately I've been trying to be a little bit more disciplined about like coming up with a phrase and then using it again and again, instead of just moving on because I want to challenge my brain to remember what I made up and then use it again. Okay. Plus like if you get into theory and I mean, there's a, there's a kind of an emotional, you know, natural component to this, but there are certain notes that you want to end on, on, you know, any given bar or the end of a musical phrase. Uh, I forget what they call it. It's like, um, it's, it's uh, resolving a phrase, right? So yeah. if you end on a specific note, it might sound very dissonant. Whereas if you, if you end on say, you know, the root note of a key, it's, it's going to feel like it resolved. So if you're playing improvisationally, you kind of have to be aware of that because if you're just, you know, playing notes at random, you may end a phrase on a note that sounds totally wrong with either the chords you're playing over or the song you're playing over. Yeah. And obviously as you go on, you can, you can end on a dissonant thing on purpose, but if mm -hmm. you're just kind of messing around, you, you don't want it to be obvious that you didn't mean for that to happen. So when it sounds off and then you're like, what was that? Everybody's going to know. Yeah. It's no good. But I also uh, never learned keys on guitar. Not once. I don't mm -hmm. never been good. at. You that really part. don't have to. I mean, Stevie Ray Vaughan, I consider him to be one of the greatest guitarists who ever lived. He never learned to read music. I don't think he really knew keys. He just he just played. Yeah. Like keys, music theory, reading music. These are all ways that humans have come up with to communicate with each other about music in a language that we can teach. But music is something that is kind of built into us and uh the way you play music you can just learn it kind of by feeling and you don't have to translate it into, into this codified written language or even these codified concepts you can just understand that this sounds good to me this sounds bad to me i will play what sounds good to me yeah and these codified concepts are like the ones that we're talking about at least are for western music specifically they don't include like mm -hmm. microtones uh if you're playing like shakuhachi there's a different way of writing it out because there are a differing number of notes. It's limited. So it wouldn't make yeah. sense to have a whole grand staff going on. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've found useful for songwriting and um, that I guess songwriting isn't on our list, but I'll go on a small tangent about this. I'm somebody who listens to like progressive metal. So going into the songwriting process, I was like, I have to make a really complex, cool sounding song uh, which just got me nowhere. So then I was like, all right, well, you know what? Maybe this is like any other skill where there are building blocks to it. Um, and if I want to figure out what these building blocks are, I will number one, you know, do some reading about what they are. But two, I will listen to the simplest music I can think of. So 
I actually had a day where I sat in the coffee shop and I listened over and over and over again to Dark Horse by Katy Perry. Uh, and then also I kissed a girl by Katy Perry, which is probably the simplest one because it's like literally three minutes. It is your absolute basic verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus structure. Yeah. Like most simple song structure. And uh, I just sat there like counting measures, counting bars, counting beats per minute. I'm like, oh, I kind of understand the building blocks now. And then uh, I, I went and listened to a song that I perceive as slightly more complex. I think the one was, uh, I forget the name, but it was a song by the band Paris. Uh, Eyelids, that's what it was. And I'm like, all right, Eyelids sounds like a more complex song to me. Let me listen to it now with the framework that I've established from listening to Katy Perry. And then I realized, oh, hey, this is actually very similar. It's just that there are a couple of measures of instrumental breaks thrown in. Hmm. and that's it but otherwise it's the same like holy crap and um you know you can do that you can study the the patterns of chord progressions and once you understand that you can start to write your own songs but you'll also start to understand how these songs work and you'll be able to play along with them uh more easily if that's what you want to do yeah so uh, one thing i think we should do for this episode is give people some resources for further learning um and there i think there are a lot more for guitar uh, but to go back for a second for rollerblading, there are a couple of YouTube channels that would be interesting to check out. One is a guy named Bill Stoppard. He has a lot of good tutorials on the basic stuff. And then there's another guy named Tiago Inline Skater. And uh, he, one video I watched in particular recently was like a, how to get into slalom skating, which is just the coolest thing ever. It's like It's like some jet set radio stuff. It's super cool. So check his channel out as well. And then for guitar... Um, again, I never really took lessons. I didn't really read books. Uh, I just sort of puzzled stuff out for myself, but there is a good site and I believe corresponding YouTube channel called Justin guitar. They have a lot of really good introductory material. They have uh, chord diagrams, scale diagrams, all kinds of stuff like that. And then, um, uh, Paul Davids has a great YouTube channel all about guitar stuff. So that's a great resource. And then I think there's a website, I think it's called Songster, that has a lot of guitar tabs. And typically Ultimate Guitar is the resource to get tabs and or chord sheets for songs that you want to play. And I guess I should mention them because most people probably want to play established songs. Most people probably aren't weirdos like me that just play lead stuff improvisationally. Um, but I like Songster because it... You, it will take the tab and it creates a MIDI recreation of the song. So you can hit play and watch this bar go along and sort of see how the song sounds with those notes. And it doesn't sound as good as the real song, but it's like, oh, okay, now I get how this phrase is supposed to sound. Because when you're learning a song, like you can't learn it at 1x speed. You got to slow it down. And at least for me, when, it slows, when it's slowed down, sometimes it just sounds wrong. And I'm like, wait, how is this phrase supposed to sound? So you can, with the MIDI recreations, a little bit easier to see what's going on or wow. hear what's going on. Yeah. And the, you've used Usition before, right? Yeah, I used that for a little bit. Yeah, I found it. It was tough for me to get into it because th there's like this sort of video gamey progression that you go through, almost like a skill tree. And I started it after I had been playing guitar for like 15 years. So the first, like, I don't know, five hours of content was just stuff that was so boring for me. I couldn't get through it. 
But for a beginner guitar player, that might be an interesting app because it is like Guitar Hero, essentially, where your device listens to you as you play along with the song and give, gives you a score for your accuracy. Yeah. So that could be yeah, that could be pretty a good interesting. Uh, that's actually a decent transition into our our third skill, which is piano. Yeah. Because uh, Musician, I think, is was originally a piano learning app, if I am not incorrect, and then has guitar now, too. Yeah, and I, I definitely used it for piano. It's pretty interesting. Um, I was How do you get into that? To, well, I got into piano with lessons a long time ago. But if I were getting hmm. into it um, now, the important things that I would want to note are that... Um, if you can get any feedback from somebody who can play, not not necess- you don't have to pay for lessons if you don't have to, you just know somebody who plays, get them mm-hmm. to check out how your hands are positioned first because as you start to learn piano, if you put in some bad habits, you have just you're going to increase massively your chance at getting like carpal tunnel or something terrible that prevents you from playing piano ever again. And it's it's very important because any any techniques that you do incorrectly is something you're going to do thousands and thousands of times. Yeah, it's probably worth noting that that's something you should consider for the way you're typing as well. Yeah, because your nerve damage initially came from uh, poor ergonomics with your typing position. Yeah, yeah, in in mix with many poor coincidences. But yeah, it's just like mm. with piano, that's pretty dangerous. Just because you might be, you might think I'm going to do this weird twisty motion and that will allow me to hit this key with this finger when yeah. it would be better to think maybe I shouldn't hit it with that finger at all. And I need to reconsider how to do this in a way that feels natural. Mm-hmm. But I started music. Um, basically, I've always wanted to write songs. So when I played piano, I was always writing little songs or I'd teach myself uh, a Mario or a Zelda medley. And that would be cool. That's actually a good point. Video game music is often a great starting point, especially yeah. retro. Because yeah, it's, it's very simple. simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not hot cross buns, which is boring. Yeah, and that's that's really one of the biggest things is that, I mean, even in community college, I had decided I'm going to take a piano class as an elective just to brush up on my piano after I had quit lessons for several years. And then I was actually discouraged for the purposes of the class from working on my own music, they wanted me to instead play traditional practice stuff like mm-hmm. when the saints go marching in or whatever. And they weren't even more challenging or skillful than what I was doing. So yeah. it felt kind of pointless. And I really just don't like the idea of trying to learn with those sorts of things. Uh, so the thing that helps me most with piano, other than making sure I don't ruin my hands long term, is that. Uh, one of the things that helps me is something that helps me with virtually everything. Just every single thing I learn helps me with photography, pixel art, all the languages I speak and study, programming, cooking, probably more things. It's just I only learn the basics to the minimum degree possible before trying projects I'm excited about. And often I can learn mm. the basics during that same project so I can just start something I like immediately. You know, like yeah. many, many classes, many teachers or learning methods in general, they'll want you to learn some set of basics and they'll present them in a really general way because they're meant to apply to everyone. Mm -hmm. And that will often make them really boring to you, but you're just supposed to stick to the script 
So now you associate piano with hot cross buns, Yankee doodle. And when the saints go marching in (laughs) and that is just not that fulfilling. Mm -hmm. So I would definitely advise trying to find simple things like video game songs that you like yourself. Um, There is musician, like you mentioned, a site that I like that has sheet music. If you wish to slowly try to piece that together is musescore.com. Mm-hmm. That is where you can get pre-made sheet music. If you go to musescore.org, you can get the software that's open source and free and you can make sheet music with it. And I think there's also a community of people who have made sheet music and you can download it into musescore. Uh, and I have the MuseScore iPad app, so I can kind yeah. of put that on my piano and use it as sheet music. Yeah, that's the .com version. You can get all, ah. all this stuff. But .org gives you the software. And I've never been super good at reading music because my patience for music theory was low. I wanted to play my own songs. But you it, memorize the phrase and kind of build the muscle memory faster than you read the, it, yeah. the notes. Yeah, and I just didn't have patience for learning someone else's music, so there was no reason for me to know how to read it. Mm-hmm. Like I, It took me until sometime last year to finally fully learn a song I didn't write, and it's only like yeah. a minute and 20 seconds long. I, I have very little patience for learning the music I didn't write. So mm-hmm. if But when I went into MuseScore, the software, to try to slowly transcribe my song, everything made so much more sense after I had finally found my way through that, how sheet music works, how key signatures work. Yeah. It all made way more sense because I was applying it to something I that meant something to me, to my own music. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to me when I was like, oh, it changes keys here. Whereas, again, with some sort of basic song, even if Yankee Doodle switched keys halfway through, which it doesn't, I would not be entertained or interested in that fact. I would just be like, this is... Basically, this is how I'm spending my mortal moments, <laughs> and it's not great. I guess you know, we should we should probably like put that more strongly. If you're gonna learn music, learn music that you enjoy listening to. Yeah, you should have you should be having fun. It's an art form. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, there are way different things you're gonna want to learn if you're really into jazz piano. That is super different. Yeah. From learning like any classical or even pop piano, just the, even the scales and the key signatures that they use might be, might be different. And mm-hmm. the way you write it down on paper, you write a jazz lead sheet. You don't actually fill in every note cause you're supposed to improvise a lot of it. So you'll write yeah. a lead sheet with the chords that you're doing and the progressions, and then you'll just mess around. Mm-hmm. But really just the biggest thing that ever taught me piano was writing my own music and yeah. liking it, which is every one of those other skills I learned only matters to me because I've figured out how to make it my own. I photograph mm-hmm. plants and bugs. I pixel art. Well, that's video games. I already like that. I learn the words I care about in languages. I program things I care about and I cook French desserts. I, I don't make myself do things that aren't interesting to me. It's a waste of potential passion in my, mm. in my eyes. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that I want to say uh, along the same lines, when I started playing piano, every time they teach you stuff in piano, they do it in C and C major because that is the key. The only key other than a minor, I guess, which is its relative minor yeah. key. 
that involves only the white keys on the keyboard. So you don't have to go up and mess with the, the black keys and figure out how to do all that. Uh, but I find major keys to be a little more boring. Now, I, that, I know that that is just me not having enough experience with major keys. So it's something that I need to go into. But, you know, as a piano, uh, I wouldn't say beginner now, but still probably in the beginner phase. For me, minor key music as a metalhead, as somebody who listens to a lot of like 2000s emo crap like that. Yeah. Uh, minor key stuff is more interesting to me. It's what I gravitate to. So um, when teaching myself piano, I started with um, improvisation and learning in uh, D minor. And if I am not incorrect, I think D minor is the key signature that only is it's one key signature that only requires one black key. Don't recall. I think it is, you know, you start from D and it's all white keys until you get to, uh, I think it is um, B sharp or is it, or is that C? I don't even know what it is. Yeah. I can't, yeah. I can't tell you because I only know these things when I sit down no, and no, no. try to know them. Sorry. A sharp. Yeah. I think it's A sharp. So anyway, if it's just one, that is not that much. That's not like, it's like a, a little bit more difficult than playing completely in C major. But for me, it's so much more interesting to well, play minor and chords. And it still is a major chord because it's got the relative major chord, but it's all yeah. like what you consider the home feeling of the chord or the key right. is what's For me, gonna... the home is, is the D key, which is it's very easy to remember because D is in the doghouse. It's the grouping of three and it's the middle one. That's where I start. And I can create triads from there and I can start to build chords and then I can improvise over those chords. Um, for me, that was much more interesting. So to your point, I'm like, I'm not going to start with C major because I find it a little bit more boring. I'm starting with D minor. I find that more interesting. And um, so a few things that helped with my own progression uh, going from being a guitar player to learning piano. Uh, the biggest one was learning a little bit of music theory. Just a little bit. And if for anyone who wants to learn, take 30 minutes. Andrew Huang has this fantastic music theory tutorial on his YouTube channel. Um, I learned through a book called Music Theory 101 by a guy named Brian Boone. I think Andrew Huang's video tutorial is actually where you should start. Music Theory 101 is a great book. I would probably supplement with that. But um, Andrew's tutorial is visual and gives sound it gives examples and it's yeah. just great it's the best introduction to music theory i've ever seen uh if you if you understand a little bit of theory just a few fundamental concepts which are intervals an interval is just how many semitones and a semitone is just like going up from like a to a sharp that would be a semitone or a half step how many you know semitones you go up um on each note within a particular key, you know, if it's major, it has a certain type of interval pattern. I forget the exact one, but it's like, you know, some amount of whole steps and half steps in a certain pattern. And, and then minor is a different pattern. If you learn that, if you learn how chords are built, so, you know, in a, in a major scale, it's like go up this many half steps for the first thing in the chord and then this many half steps for the next thing in the chord. If you learn how that's built. And then the third thing is if you learn about inversions, and I know I'm throwing a lot of whole, whole lot of jargons here, but an inversion is basically like, all right, you take your basic triad chord, which would be like the D key. And then, um, 
boy, I, I'm bad at thinking about this on the fly, like D, F, A, maybe. An inversion would just be like taking that high A and moving it down an octave. So your A is the first or the lowest note in the chord. If you learn about inversions, if you learn about your intervals and your keys, and if you learn about how to build chords in the first place, that is a lot of powerful information. If you can learn those three pieces of information, they're incredibly powerful for, for getting good at piano, especially since the piano is laid out so simply for learning how those intervals work. Like guitar is hard because there's six strings and like if oh, you play yeah, it on yeah. one string, it makes sense. But if you're going between the strings, it's like, what, what note is this? I don't know. The piano is so easy. Yeah, it's all in one. It's in, it's in order. It's a super mm -hmm. helpful visually. You can sort of see why it's doing what it's doing. Yeah. Uh, it, one thing I will mention here is uh, Martin's camera glitched out. It did. So. <laughs> it did, and I was very sad. And we, we may have really. Martin's actual face popping up here in the video, and we, we may not. We'll see what happens. We do I not. Know. We do not know. Uh, one more thing I want to mention about piano. Okay. Is that the the base level of music theory and stuff like that, that can be really useful, but don't, make sure not to box yourself in with music theory because yeah. I will say that one of the benefits that I found myself having is that because I learned by messing around and trying to learn songs from video games and making up my own stuff and just kind of hitting keys till it sounded right, you could sing me a melody and I can play it to you in a very basic version in like 20 seconds. Whereas I've met people who learned entirely through music theory, strict music stuff, and they simply can't even, they can't even mm. fathom how one just comes up with it because I was learning by ear. So mm -hmm. to me, the music felt natural and it's not required for me to have the structure of music theory. I can improve it with that structure, but I don't have to have it if I just want to feel the music. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's something that's uh, good to mention. And I, I've sort of noticed, like as somebody who's learning a little bit of music theory, I will get to points where I'm playing just for fun and I'm like, hey, this sounds good, but it doesn't make sense because I this doesn't, this isn't a triad chord. I'm playing a chord with two notes right next to each other. That doesn't make sense at all. And you know what? There's probably something in music theory that says like, yes, that works and this is what it's called, but I'm not that far yet. Yeah, like you may so hear like, that it's good, but not understand it yet. Yeah, so for me, it's like, oh, well, if it sounds good, I'm going to use it. Not, oh, you know, I haven't gotten that far in my studies of the, the tonality of the universe, so therefore I'm not going to use it. Like, no, if it sounds good, I'm going to use it. What is the tone of the universe, you think? Like A flat? It's math. Okay. It's just math flat. Just the concept. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so yeah, so resources for piano. Um, Andrew Wong's music theory tutorial on YouTube. Absolutely a great one. Uh, musician is good for learning piano. Um, Nare Soul, she has a great YouTube channel. She's very, very, very advanced. I don't know what she has in terms of beginner content, but I do like the fact that she posts, uh, or she at least has a few videos where she shows her practice routine and why she's doing certain things and how she progresses from easier routines to more difficult ones. I really like that. I'm not sure what you have for piano. Just the Muse score resources. Um... Mm. Oh, and if you pick a piece of sheet music, number one, uh, the bass clef uses a different, 
it start or not, not a different order of notes, but it starts at a different, you know, it's not F A C E. Yeah, yeah, different keys on the, the lines. It's different. Uh, so I had to learn that. I was sitting there trying to like puzzle out a piece of Hollow Knight music, thinking the bass club used the exact same notes in the exact same positions on the staff, and I was like, "Why does this sound so bad? This is stupid. It's different." So learn that. Um, I have printed out on my piano a circle of fifths, which shows the different keys and the and the key signatures because it it doesn't say on the staff like this is F sharp. It's like a number of sharp symbols or flat symbols, and you have to memorize. Like, oh, you know, five flat symbols equals this key. I haven't memorized it, which is why it didn't say a key there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then it also I also have a staff there with the names of the notes for both treble and bass clef. That's very useful. And the other thing is when you print out or you get a piece of sheet music on MuseScore, teach yourself the right hand, then teach yourself the left hand, then try to put it together. Oh, yeah, yeah. Putting stuff together does take some effort, especially if you also want to sing on top of it. So don't beat oh, yourself yeah. up. If that takes a bit, you have to become pretty automatic at all of the parts. Playing and singing music is so difficult. It definitely I'm takes starting some to get to the point where I can do it with my guitar. If I'm playing very simple chord progressions with a very simple strum pattern, then I can sing over it very, very easily now. But the moment like anything else comes into it, I have yeah, you it. need you need like the music to not require your focus or I guess maybe the mm -hmm. lyrics, but yeah, I guess what I've been told is like get so good at the playing part that it's automatic and then you can yeah. put the singing over top of it. That's how you do. Yeah, that. like you can get to the point where I I don't look down at the piano and I could just be like talking to Ashley looking up and then I'll just play anyway because my arms will just know this is how far we go at that spot. Yeah. Works every time. Mhm. Mm uh videography we had that on there yeah that's and that's like, something oh, that boy. you've gotten much much better at i uh, yeah i do I think the... it's a big <laughs> so i could talk about this topic making it could for making videos but how does one get started <laughs> with that with with some basic resources to learn because they're not going to jump to making the same level video that they're you're going to have on your channel probably immediately that's overwhelming and the accumulation yeah. of many 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 subtle techniques yeah I've been, I've been making videos for five years more than five years now um i use a cinema camera like yeah it's not <laughs> don't feel like you have to make videos like i make them from the beginning my first videos uh i was using i had like a basic sony camera and i had bought it to take photos in japan uh but it took video and I didn't even have a tripod that was tall enough for me while I was standing. So my first videos on my channel, um, I put the I put the camera on top of my bookshelf, and then I used PlayStation Two games to <laughs> stack it so it was pointing at a downward angle, framing my face correctly. And I think I had like something heavy. Um, at the back of the shelf, I, it was like a dumbbell and I put the camera strap around the dumbbell so the camera couldn't fall. Yeah, that, sound, that, was... that sounds about right. <laughs> uh, so uh, I guess the I'll, I'll give a few things for making videos. Uh, you need to use the camera you have and then I think you need to master three things first. Lighting, sound, and content. So lighting, you want to have your face or your subject lit well. 
uh, and you can you can go into like three point lighting if you really want to get sort of technical with the basics. But the the most simple thing would just be like if you're gonna film yourself, uh, film near and uh, not open window, but a win a window that's not covered with blinds, and then film it so that the the window is lighting your face. So maybe have the camera like near the window, or if you think about like a 360 arc in your room with uh, the window being at zero degrees, like maybe have the camera within 45 degrees of the window and then you kind of like be opposite the window. So that way it's lighting you instead of you having this blown out background with your face yeah. being in shadow. Yeah. That's a big thing. So just think about lighting. That's a huge thing. Um, ev like most everyone has a smartphone. The camera on your smartphone is great these days. Yeah, for basic I, I'd purposes, say the camera like in the camera in my last three iPhones is probably better than the camera I started my YouTube channel with. It's they they could all film in 4K, that's for sure. I think the only thing my original camera had over the iPhone camera is the ability to get a little bit of a blurry background, and that is a, a function of just the lens being able to go down to a lower aperture. Yeah, and that's just something that mobile that lens can't do it because of the way it's set yeah. up. You and could theoretically you out, get an attachment lens that could do it. I mean, a mobile, a mobile lens can do it to a degree. Like if you go out to a field and you put the camera near your face, the background is going to be blurry. Oh, well, just yeah. Because yeah. the background is so far away that the, um, what do they call that? The, the focal distance, the field of view is, it eventually runs out and you get, it gets blurry. It's just that it's, tough to make a mobile lens make that field of view very narrow to get a nice blurry background. Like if you're in a bedroom or something, it's hard to get, but you know what? It doesn't really matter. Um, in fact, when I think of people who don't have crazy production value or um, like blurry backgrounds or whatever, I think of a YouTuber named Jenny Nicholson. She makes videos sitting on her bed talking about like Star Wars or theme parks or whatever she wants. Her camera quality is just, it looks like she's filming on a potato. And I'm pretty sure she has access to a better camera because she has another channel that's like smaller and people don't know about it. But like the videos that are on that are crispier than her main channel. So I almost wonder if she does the bad <laughs> camera on purpose. Um, but her channel's big now. Like it's hundreds of thousands of subscribers. She gets more video, more views per video than I do, I'm pretty sure. And that's because her content's good. And her content is nothing fancy with crazy camera tricks. It's just that what she's talking about is interesting. And she says it in an interesting way. She's fun to listen to. So, you know, if you want to get into making videos, I guess that's the main thing is like, think about having something interesting to say and, and doing it in an interesting, interesting way. Um, for me, that often comes in the writing. You know, if I'm writing a video script, uh, I often want to go through it with a second kind of, go through a second pass to either punch up jokes or remove parts that I don't think are necessary or interesting. Um, this also happens in editing. I'll say things that even during the scripting process I thought were necessary. And then I'm in the edit and I'm like, ah, this is kind of padding out the section of the video. It's killing the energy. I'm just going to cut it. Yeah. Like what you I, don't I say really... is almost as important as what you do. Oh yeah. I have to think about the whole uh, kill your kill your darlings thing. I think it was uh, Hemingway that said that, kill your darlings. And he said that in reference to writing, but it, I think it's even more important when it comes to video. You're going to 
say something in your video or write it in your script. And you're going to think that's super necessary. I have to have that. Uh, but then your audience thinks it's the most boring thing in the world. And it would have been better as an overall product to remove that bit. Good example. I made this video on the Rome research tool recently, and I was talking about all the things I liked about it. Uh, and one of the things was the hybrid markdown system, which is very much like notions. If you use markdown formatting and then you hit enter, it actually does the formatting for you. I love that. But I spent like two minutes talking about it. And then I'm in the edit and I'm like, this video is like 18 minutes long. And two minutes of that is just me talking about how you can make text bold in a certain way and how that's great. I chopped it out. Nobody cared. Fair enough. They're going to realize you can do that when they start using the tool, you know? So there's like, there's things you think is are important. And then you got to look at it from your audience's perspective and ask yourself like, is this, is this hurting the overall flow of the video or not? You know? And if it's like an educational video, um, one thing I constantly have to tell myself is this isn't a comprehensive course on this topic. If anything, I'm just getting people interested in, in it. So they go do more research on their own. And if that's the case, I can leave things out. That's fine. Yeah. You just want to lead them through the amount of content you want to talk about. And you, and you don't want to have like a billion year long video just because you're like all the information is important because unless you're like Bill Nye and people already know and are committed to listening to you, you're not going to get them to pay attention for that mm -hmm. long. You have to understand that the viewer's time is very valuable and yeah. you don't want to waste it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that, that's content. The biggest thing I want to say about content, I've started making this very public is uh, I think you should follow something that I call the 1% rule where to get better, you commit to trying to get 1% better with each thing you do. And then you put yourself on a schedule so that way you're actually publishing things on a frequent basis. And if you can do these two things, then over the long term, you will get insanely good at the thing you're doing because you are guaranteeing that you're publishing on a frequent schedule. And with everything you're publishing, you're getting a little bit better. So on my videos now, I pin a comment that I call my 1% rule log, where I will kind of list out the few things that I focused on doing a little bit better in that video. And then I've linked to an overall journal where I kind of keep those, those notes for every video that I'm doing. Um, so over time, people are going to be able to see like, Oh, this is the video where he learned to do that. And this is the video where he learned to do that. And I want to illustrate the point that, you know, if you watch one of my videos and you're like, this thing is so technical and crazy, it's because I made like 400 other videos before that, each of which, yeah. taught me one little thing that then became second nature over time. Yeah. Cause you really so, need a chance to focus on it. Mm -hmm. Um, going back to some technical stuff with lighting, my first lights I built myself, you can build your own lights, uh, by buying led light bulbs. And I would buy led light bulbs because they don't put out a ton of heat. And then like these, there's like these shop lights you can get from home Depot or Lowe's or whatever. Uh, you can put them onto, you can clamp them to anything. My initial lighting setup, I clamped them to my loft bed post legs. And then uh, you can take wax paper or parchment paper. I think I used wax paper and tape it over the front of the shop light thing. And that gets you your diffusion. So, you know, my first probably 50 or 60 videos were filmed with those DIY lights. The first few of them were just, I didn't even have light stands. I just clamped them to anything I had. <laughs> I think I did a couple of videos where I, I didn't, I wanted a stand, but I couldn't because 
I couldn't clamp it to anything high enough. So I sat in my office chair and clamped one light to my loft bed and then clamped another light to like another chair in my room, just pointed towards me. And that worked just fine. Yeah. So that works. Uh, and then the other thing I mentioned was audio. Audio is more important than video. Yeah, like if, you, if you look at a really nicely filmed video that has terrible audio, it's going to feel so amateur and it's not pleasant to listen to. And you got to think about this like sound uh, hearing is an involuntary sense. Whereas like sight is a voluntary sense. I can close my eyes. I can look away. So what I choose to look at is my choice. And uh, what I choose to listen to is not my choice. So I think that we're much more sensitive to pleasant audio than we are to pleasant visuals. Not to say that visuals aren't important, but I think you got to get your audio right first. Um, so invest in a microphone before you invest in a more expensive camera. And the really nice thing about this is that a decent microphone costs far less than a decent camera. Yeah. Like orders of magnitude less. You can get a $15 lav mic on Amazon that plugs into your phone. Now, most phones don't have a headphone jack anymore, so you gotta get like the adapter. But if you get that, plug that into your phone and then you clip the lav mic to your shirt, then your your audio is instantly better. Um, I never used a lav when I was starting out. I almost never do now. I only do it when I'm doing walk and talk stuff outside. Um, the I think I used a Blue Yeti when I started and then I moved to this SM7B, which is kind of an expensive mic. But if you're listening to this right now and you're thinking to yourself, Martin's audio quality sounds pretty much just as good as Tom's. You're right. And you're using, uh, I think it's a $75 mic. Yeah. It's the uh, ATR2100. Now it's a mic that you kind of have to have somewhat close to your mouth to sound good because it's a dynamic mic. But, uh, you know, I love YouTube because there is always a creator that causes you to challenge your assumptions. When I got into YouTube, my assumption was I'm going to look like a total noob amateur if my mic is in the view of the camera. So I have to hide it. And I would always position the mic right below the camera. And I thought I had pretty good audio. But then like Potato Jet has this gigantic channel with 600,000 subscribers. And he's one of the most respected names in um, the whole like YouTube community of, of videographers and filmographers. And most of his videos, he's just got the mic on the mic arm in the frame. And that's what he's using for sound. And nobody cares because again, the content is interesting. Yeah. So, you know, you want to get into videos? Cool. Buy a $75 dynamic mic, have it in the frame close to your mouth so you sound great and then light yourself correctly. Uh, and then for editing, there are free editing programs out there now. I edit with Premiere Pro, but I'm not sure I would recommend Premiere Pro to anybody new these days. I'm, I'm like locked in because I'm such an expert with it, but I also hate it for certain reasons. Um, DaVinci Resolve is free. Hit Film Express is free. Macs come with uh, iMovie. So the tools are there, you know, like $45 spent on some DIY lights or no dollars and an open window, uh, a $15 lav mic off Amazon or like a, you know, $50 to $75 dynamic mic for really nice quality plug into your computer and edit it with a free program, you're good to go. Yeah, it's not that big a deal anymore. Yeah. Although if you're going to have the mic in the shot, I would say that like, uh, this is my opinion with photography as well. Have it more in the shot than just like, like a cent. If it's just barely in the oh, shot, yeah. like by a centimeter, it looks like an accident. If you're going to put it in make it look like, you know, it's in. Yes. No one should be like, did they see that? 
They just not yeah. crop it out. That's yeah. a good point. Just make it look, make it like that's your on purpose style, and then you could do anything you want. But if you make it so that mm-hmm. only a sliver's there, it'll just look like you don't know what you're doing. In fact, the video that I put out today, uh, it was about organizing your phone. I have this mic on this arm in the shot, and I positioned it in such a way that the arm and the mic actually kind of filled out the composition and made it look a little mm-hmm. bit better. Because the way I had it before, I felt that me being on one side of the screen it felt a little empty. So I was like, oh, I could center myself or I could just position the mic so it looks really nice. And I had like a plain blue gradient background. So I just positioned the mic so it was like in the perfect position where it wasn't covering anything, didn't have anything in the background that was complex and just looks, I, to my eyes, nice in the composition. Yeah. And I suppose if you can think of any clever ways to do it, this is a good way to handle any shortcomings you might have while you're still learning. Just yeah. make your flaws look like they were style choices. And then that's true. <laughs> there, there you go. I mean, plenty of artists will do that. You go, you, you're going to find illustrators who are like, I always avoid drawing noses. Don't tell anyone mm-hmm. why it's because I can't just make it look like it was on purpose. And you can get through a lot of weaknesses while you're learning how to, how to master them on the side. Yeah. You'll look professional Dude, the whole Zilla, time. Coffeezilla holds his mic during his videos like he's some kind of announcer or something just the whole time. Yeah. You just and no, you know, no one cares. Do whatever you want. Good audio over good video every time. Yeah. All right. We have one more skill we to do talk have about. One more skill. And I know nothing about this skill. So let's talk about pixel art. Yeah. Because I, I know people I've have asked you questions about, about that. that. Like practically every time I post something, I get a few questions. So I started pixel art. Technically with Animal Crossing a long time ago on GameCube, but that was just me messing around. I didn't know I would actually care about it later. Mm -hmm. So the biggest thing with pixel art for me is one of the same things for piano is that I started only with things that interest me. I barely went through a small tutorial. I went through like the first step of examples. And then after that, immediately started just applying the logic to my own things. Mm. Um, The tutorials I started with, were the Pixel Grimoire series by uh, Pedro Medeiros. Uh, he worked on Celeste and Towerfall, and the Pixel Grimoire series is on Medium, so you can just find it. Uh, he also has some cool animated s- tutorials on pixel art techniques on his Patreon, pretty sure, just little little GIFs slash whatever that, that'll show you, here's how to make a character jump and make it look mm-hmm. dynamic, and it'll all be in there. So I really liked those tutorials. Uh, I watched a Color Palettes 101 video from Pixel Pete on YouTube. Uh, he's got some cool stuff in there. But the biggest thing that's helped me is that once I understood the very basics, I found a software, Asprite, A-S-E-P-R-I-T-E, that I love. And then the first thing I made was Enoch, the scary pumpkin thing from Over the Garden Wall. Oh, yeah. Now, I started with Enoch, not because, I mean, Over the Garden Wall is one of my favorites, and so is Enoch. So I'm not even going to lie. I do love them both. But the reason I chose it was because Enoch is a scary pumpkin thing with big round eyes and some sort of weird tentacly arm things. That's basically just a series of circles and ovals. Yeah. So I'll take the, the same beginner things that you would be given where it's like, here, let me learn how to draw basic shapes. Let me learn how to do basic shading. I don't ever do those with an example I don't care about. Enoch was me practicing 
just putting some circles in there, doing a slight bit of shading with the colors. And I loved it. I, if I wanted, I could have done the same thing with like a Voltorb, you know, if you're trying to do some Pokemon, oh, because yep. it's a circle. You can probably... Or Magnemite. Yeah. It, you'd pick something that you can already make look good as you're learning the beginning stuff, and you'll immediately feel cool when you do it, even though it didn't require that much technical skill. But if I'm going to do something, I want it to look good. So I will do it at whatever level I can currently make look good so that I, I feel good about it each time. So I started with that. Um, and with each new new project that I took on, I did sort of the 1% rule thing you were talking about. So with Enoch, I was learning basic shapes. Uh, a month later, maybe two, I don't know. Calendars are hard. But when Pokemon Sword and Shield came out, I wanted to put out this collection of my single favorite Pokemon from each generation and then the starter I was going to choose for the new one. So I made eight 32 by 32 pixel limited Pokemon sprite things. I was practicing an outline technique in there. I had to use a new outline technique mimicking how I do coloring books. So the outline mm -hmm. of each character is just a darker color of the color it borders. That's how I used to color. And I had to work harder. I want to look at your uh, it's on Instagram, right? If you go to Twitter and media, it will be way faster because I post photos of all the time on Instagram. That's true. Yo, my but I, I do not on you. Twitter. But for for the Pokemon, I tried that outlining technique because I was using more advanced colors than Enoch. But also, I wanted to keep them all in a 32 by 32 grid, the same size for each one. So I had to learn which features do I keep and which features do I get rid of. That's mm. the biggest decision in pixel art is as you as you shrink it, you manually choose which features don't deserve a pixel anymore. Yeah. And it still has to look good. So Wait, is Enoch the same the same grid, uh, same size grid as the Pokemon here? Very possibly. Okay. He looks more zoomed in. Maybe you just used Well, I, I I mean I would have exported it as its own thing. Each of the Pokemon I'd put into a Oh, each Pokemon is the same size grid as Enoch. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Each, one, saying, each like, one is, and then I put them into gotcha. a bigger overall collection. So that yeah. was just the, those were the first two pixel arts I really seriously did. And then the next thing I did was the Christmas scene, which I made very motivating to learn a ton of techniques on because uh, it was my late stepfather's birthday is Christmas. So I included a black balloon and then suddenly I, I wanted it to look really good. So I had to learn isometric view, shading, animation, a blurred texture I used for the walls and floors. And mm -hmm. because I gave it an emotional meaning, it pushed me through all those steps. And it just it just continues. Each time I get better and better. The yeah. persimmons for breakfast one, I had to learn scale and simulating distance and shadows. I even have a shadow going through ice, so it's like translucent in part of the shadow. Yes, you do. And then I did the Haystack Rock one recently, which is a completely different coloring shading style to capture a more photographic feeling. Mm -hmm. So I had to decide I'm going to give three or four different shades to each color type to work with. And the so each time I'm stacking on a new ability, which is why I've made things like the Haystack Rock one, which I think looks pretty cool. And it's my sixth pixel art, really. Maybe fifth if you don't count a bonus one. So well, I would also count the Pixel Llama. Yeah, and the Pixel Llama, I worked extra hard on because I wanted to do it for the website. Yeah. But it's just, there aren't 
very many, but the reason that they look cool is because I push myself to the edge of my current ability to make something look good. And I work on stuff that I can't make look good in the background. And I push it out once it's something I can be proud of because it's the art I'm sharing. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. And it's exactly the same It's the 1% rule. Yeah. You're just kind of, especially that Christmas one, I, I felt that was a kind of a big leap forward because it was, yeah, that was going like, that was like pure two D one, you know, and sometimes, um, sometimes you go more than 1%. Yeah. Cause you're inspired and you know, it's like, you know, don't feel but like I can only go 1% used whatever that even inspiration means. and it made mm-hmm. it, it made it feel worth it. Uh, yeah. One of the important things I want to say about the haystack rock one is I almost gave that up because it was so different from what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I had literally no way I didn't understand how to do it at all. So what happened was I went back to those pixel grimoire tutorials and I did something that is that is very important whenever you're reading or learning from somebody online. And it's that I found a secret lesson that wasn't in the text because it didn't say anything about this, but I was studying the pictures on the page and I realized, why does this picture have so much depth? Why does it look like it has so much depth? I know there aren't that many colors in here. So then I studied, oh wait, there are three shades of this, this blue. There's a highlighted one, a neutral one, a dark one. Okay, what about the skin tone? Oh, there it is again. There's a highlighted one, a neutral one, and a dark one. And I kept finding it. And so I just mm-hmm. decided, okay, until I understand better, that is my minimum rule here is for this haystack rock to capture the shading and depth I need. I'm going to give each one three or four different shades. And I learned that not because someone told it to me, but because I watched what they did yeah. rather than listening to them explain what they did. Mm-hmm. And, and it unlocked secret lessons. Yeah, that's a big thing. That's actually something that um, I remember doing like as a beginning blogger because there's all kinds of articles out there. It's like, here's how to design your website. Here's how to write a blog article. But then like the bloggers I really admired, like Steve Cam from Nerd Fitness, Pat Flynn from Smart Passive Income, I would pay attention to how they built their blog. Yeah, how did they like, design their website? How did they Yeah, like 2010, like... Oh, Steve has this cool feature box at the top of his website instead of it just being the latest article. Maybe I should do that. Oh, this like Pat is using this much line height on his article text. And oh, he only does like, you know, one or two sentences before doing a line break that kind of breaks up the article, makes it not a wall of text. Um, And I do the same thing with videos. Like I've noticed, I try to pay attention to what I find interesting in a video. So uh, recently I've been watching this channel called Up Is Not Jump and he does a lot of videos on VR games. Um, And for the most part, they're like your typical review of a game, a lot of voiceover. But what's unique about his channel is like, it seems like every 15 to 30 seconds, he will just throw in this incredibly jarring skit. And it's like, sometimes it's like one second of footage. Like, uh, I don't know. He's doing a video about alien isolation. He'll just like cut to him with this alien face hooker prop on his face, just like screaming or I don't know. It's, it's often very ridiculous, but I notice like, Oh, these little skits kind of break up the, the video and kind of like shake up the pacing a little bit. And they keep me watching the whole time. And there's also just something about the audio coming from a different source that sort of like resets my attention and doesn't let my brain just 
start wandering and getting, you know, lost. So I tried that in my how to focus video that I just put out from the work from home series. I'm like, well, let's just try doing a couple of skits where I actually record audio from them and just throw them in there to break stuff up. And it's just another thing. Like, I didn't really, no one told me to do that. It wasn't in a tutorial anywhere. It's just, I noticed it. That's cool. Yeah. You just, you, you observe, you pay attention. So now for whatever next pixel art I want to work on, I've been looking at a lot of incredibly impressive work and Mm -hmm. now I can start to understand how are they doing? How do they handle the angle there? How's the perspective work here? Because for isometric perspective, it turns out that there's basically like a mathematical rule behind how my lines are oriented that makes Mm -hmm. them fit on the isometric plane. And so I guess that's a pretty good tip for a lot of things is just observe who's doing it and don't just listen to what they're teaching you because not everybody knows how to explain everything they're doing. Yeah. I, I mean, I just explained most of my pixel art and there still might be something in there that mm-hmm. you're just like, I don't know what that is. Let me look at it and really think, why would you do that? Yeah. So to recap pixel art, the resources you had mentioned were the pixel grimoire, right? Yep. On medium from Pedro Medeiros. And then uh, Pixel Pete's YouTube channel where he has, I don't think it's only about pixel art because I think he has some game programming stuff. Yeah, he I does think there's have some game stuff in there too. He's got some basic uh, pixel art tutorials as well. Um, Those would probably be a pretty good place to start. Yeah, and then the, the program A-Sprite, which is ah, yep. cool. Um, yeah, the, I mean, that's basically all I'm working with right now. So, Cool. All right, well, boy, th- I thought this episode was going to be quick, but of course, you know, how do you define or design an episode where you talk about five things you're passionate about and make it quick? <laughs> that is Whoops. that is true. I mean, it's we. How long have we been doing this? Like this episode is yeah. an hour and a half. Yeah, we we make every episode like between an hour and hour <laughs> and a half. We don't even try; it just happens. It it does just happen. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm gonna do a thirty minute episode. There's just no way. I would feel bad if I made a thirty minute episode, and I know like it. I shouldn't. Cause the length doesn't determine the quality, but it's just like, I'm so used to talking to you for an hour to an hour and a half. Yeah. I don't even know what, how, what we could cover in that amount of time. But also, I don't know, like sometimes I will, I love the money lab podcast with my friend Matt. And when there's like a 30 minute episode, I'm like, Oh man, I was hoping for an hour. Mm. It's like, it's like a thing I look forward to every week. So I don't know. I usually shoot for like an hour. Just we'll cover that's... your whole commute or your money Let's back. Shoot guaranteed or your money back because you didn't spend any money (laughs) anyway uh that's going to be it for this episode i think so i know there's going to be some show notes for this because we talked about resources for all five of these skills so you're going to go over to cigpodcast.com slash 294 if you want to get those show notes and check out any of those resources otherwise cigpodcast.com no trailing slash no numbers if you want to just get to the podcast's homepage where you can find out how to subscribe to this show which will ensure that you are subscribed even when we change the name and the branding and all that good stuff. Uh, we are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Pocket Casts, all that good stuff. YouTube as well, if you want to look at our faces, though apparently Martin's camera glitched out, so you may be looking at, this is, I don't know. This is true. Maybe just a picture of the pumpkin head guy. I don't know who, I don't know what it's going to be. It could be anything. could be but anything. we're on YouTube, and that is also at CIGpodcast.com. Uh Otherwise, uh, I put out three videos last week. So youtube.com slash Thomas Frank, if you're interested. Uh, One was on how to focus when you're working from home. One was on a really cool note-taking tool that I've been using called Rome Research. And one was about how to organize your phone, 
get rid of apps that are distracting you, mitigate against distractions, all kinds of cool stuff like that. So check those out. Um, what else? What else? What else? Oh yeah, collegeinfogeek.com slash newsletter. Sign up to my newsletter every week on Tuesday. I send a uh, little bit of a summary of what we made for you that week, be it articles on College Info Geek, the podcast that we came out with, if there was a podcast, and the videos that I've done, plus cool things that I have found, things that I'm reading, tools I want to share, study music, and a quote of the week. So check out those resources. Share this podcast with a friend if you want to see it grow and you want to make your friends happy because this podcast is awesome and should make your friends happy. And uh, maybe go try to learn something. We gave you five potential things to go and learn. And as it turns out, all of these, with the potential exception of one of them, can be done even if you're stuck inside, quarantined all day long. You could get into all of them. In your living room. You could do, actually, you could do that. I mean, Bill Stoppard's channel, when the quarantine started, his content just shifted to him learning how to grind rails in his living room. So Now you're going to ruin your floors though. So don't do it if you're like a student. That's a terrible idea. Yeah, I imagine that he is well aware that he's ruining his floor, or maybe he just owns his apartment. I don't know what it is. But, yeah. uh, you know, guitar, piano, videography, pixel art. Uh, of all of those, I would say pixel art is probably the most accessible one. Yeah, you don't just really gotta need get to get a sprite. You do it with a mouse, right? You don't do it with a pencil or anything. Yeah, yeah, you could just do it with the mouse. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, uh, if you have other questions about any of these skills or hobbies, put them in the comments of the YouTube version. That's where we typically check comments. Uh, or anything else you would like us to cover skill-wise in future episodes because these episodes are fun. Uh, That's going to be it. So thanks, as always, for hanging out with us, and we will see you in the next episode. Stay cute.